The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. We went verse by verse through Ephesians, and then we went verse by verse through Jonah. But we'll finish November by three psalms of gratitude. So three different individual psalms of gratitude, and today is Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is categorized more accurately as a psalm of adoration or praise, particularly about a God in whom you can trust. Here's the question that Psalm 27 is answering. Can I trust God even in this? And the answer Psalm 27 gives is, yes, I can trust God even in this when he is my light and my salvation. So the title of today's sermon is The Lord, My Light and My Salvation. I trust you have Psalm 27 open. If you're using the Pew Bible, page 543 will take you to Psalm 27. You'll want the Bible open in front of you. Psalm 27, we'll look at now verse by verse. I have put on the screen here how I think the psalm breaks down. I think the structure of the psalm is bookended. That is to say, I think it's like if you're in a bookstore and you pick up a book and you try to decide whether or not that book is worth your time, you may glance at the front cover and then you see sort of the same message at the back cover. And then in the middle, it unpacks that. And that's how we'll go through Psalm 27. So you can glance at the screen as it's helpful or that's on your bulletin as we work through the psalm one section at a time. So the front cover is an expression of faith. This is revealing what the psalm is about. The Lord as my light and my salvation. So look with me now in verse 1. And verses 1 through 3 comprise what I'm calling the front cover. Verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Often the Psalms tell you their theme in verse 1. And here the theme is that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Clearly then those two words are of extreme importance. So let's make sure we understand them. The word light can mean a lot of things depending on the context. It can refer to illumination or clarification, but that is not how the word is being used here. Here in context, the word is being used as something that gives safety against darkness. Here the idea of light is its protective power. One commentator, Moiter, writes, light metaphorically in this context is in contrast to the darkness of surrounding trouble. Peter Craigie writes, the psalmist is affirming that even in the darkness of the terrible threats, he has no fear, for God is the light that dispels such fearful darkness. So light here means light of a protective power that can dispel and push back darkness. And then the next word is salvation. What a wonderful word salvation is. A word of rescue through danger and security A word of deliverance from certain threat and death. A word of hope anchored in a person of power and provision. Now these two words are combined, light and salvation, almost mathematically to give this conclusion in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. 
I like John Stott's comment here. The Lord is my light to protect me, my salvation to deliver me, my stronghold in whom I take refuge. It's interesting. The Old Testament, when you think of God, you might think of him as light. And often he's described as luminous or radiant. But this is actually the only verse in the entire Old Testament where he is called light. The Lord is light. But notice what that means to the author. Look again in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The danger that he will recount is not determinative or crippling because the Lord's light and salvation overcomes it. And he can only say this because of his relationship to the Lord. Look at the prepositions in verse 1. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. I grew up as the youngest of an older brother and sister, and I'm quite a bit younger than them both. And on occasions, my parents understandably needed to get out of the house and they would leave us alone. And if the combination of leaving us alone was me and my sister, I feared much evil. (laughs) But if the combination was that my older brother was able to swoop in and be there, I was no longer afraid because my brother was present. Of whom, I would say to my sister, shall I be afraid? You can only say this if you know that person has your best interest. Do you know the Lord like that? He is mine. He has my best interest. He is my light. He is my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? Notice how he writes now in verse 2 and 3. These are descriptions of terrifying threat. When evildoers assail me, To eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. These are circumstances of incredible dread. Someone who would eat flesh evildoers who have made it their goal to destroy me, an army encamped against me. Some have asked at this point, what is the author referring to? What are the historical circumstances? And I want to tell you that this morning, they are intentionally not given. There's no superscription to tell us at what moment the author wrote this. There's no historical situation that we know of. There was a real historical situation, but there's not one revealed for us here on purpose. Because this is a psalm to sing that we can all relate to in any situation of threat or danger we face. And the best songs always do that. Don't you know this song? Just as I am, though tossed about, With many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within, fears without. What a great description. Fightings within, fears without. What dangers, toils, or snares face you today? What fightings within or fears without have been coming down against you. How are you faring against them? 
how can you face them? Look at how he describes how he's facing them. Look again at verse 2 and 3. But notice his confidence. After describing evildoers who want to eat his flesh in verse 2, he says this at the end of verse 2. It is they who stumble and fall. With an army against him in verse 3, he says, My heart shall not fear. With war facing him, he says, Yet I will be confident. These are the words of someone who's either flirting with insanity or knows something or someone that we all need to know. What kind of crazy person has confidence in crisis? He's already told us in verse 1. Someone who knows the Lord as his light and his salvation. That's the front cover of the book. If I saw that front cover, I'd want to keep reading. Let's continue now to the middle pages. In the middle section that's bookended, he will now have two prayers for security, and they're slightly different. The first is security with God, and the second is security from God. So now look in verses 4 through 6 as the author talks about his desire for security with God. Verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is language that is touching and beautiful and intimate. The author has one thing, meaning his highest goal, his highest desire is to be with God to gaze on his perfections. He must know the Lord not abstractly, but concretely. Not academically, but personally. And not as a God who swoops in for some quick utilitarian fix, but as a God he longs to eternally have intimate relationship with. This is someone that he would describe as your friend. I'm always helped in church history by those who have warm and wonderful thoughts of God. And Jonathan Edwards has been a key walking partner to me in thinking about God that way. And here's what he wrote. God is the highest good of any creature. The enjoyment of God is our proper and the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows. The enjoyment of God is the substance. These are scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are streams, but God is the fountain. These are drops, but God is the ocean. Edwards is speaking very similarly to this author who says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord, gaze on the beauty of the Lord. God's perfections are my highest delight and desire. As you know, I I like football very well, and so I enjoy movies about football. And Remember the Titans is one of my favorites. It's this great moment in Remember the Titans where everything has been going wrong. It's the racial riots, and unfortunately the coach has been told just because of his skin color that he might be fired if they even lose a simple game. Feeling all of those pressures, the coach walks into a football stadium and utters these words. 
This is my sanctuary right here. No matter what's going on in the world, all the hatred and turmoil and swirling around us, this is always right. In these verses, the author has been saying that the house of the Lord, the stronghold and the shelter of God is his sanctuary. So friend, what is yours really when you feel stressed or afraid or overwhelmed? What do you eat? Where do you go? What do you do? How do you cope? Do you know how to find solace in God? I pray verse 5 will help you. Verse 5, he's able to talk to someone who is not just pining and hoping that God will care for him, but is assured of God's love for him. So look in verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. The writer says, I know that I can trust God because I know his commitment to me. Did you notice that phrase three times? He will. He will. He will. How do you go to God as your stronghold? You go with confidence that you can cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Many Christians are so easily bumped off their spot when trial or difficulty comes. Because their footing isn't firm in God's love for them. They might know it theoretically, intellectually, or confessionally, but they don't know it experientially or at the depth of their heart. This week, my wife and I read out loud a chapter of a book called Gentle and Lowly, which is a very helpful book about the heart of Christ. And in it, there are several lengthy recordings of Puritan authors And I love Puritans. They're my kind of guys. They can take one verse and write a full book on it. It's incredible. And John Bunyan did that with over 50 books in the 1600s. And one of them, he took John 6, verse 37. In John 6, verse 37, Jesus makes this amazing statement. He says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. In the Greek, it's actually a strong negation. He's saying, I will never, ever, ever cast you out, no matter what. Bunyan spent an entire book just dealing with those words. And in dealing with them, Bunyan knows that we struggle to actually believe that. And so here's the hypothetical interchange that Bunyan wrote about 400 years ago. No wait, we cautiously approach Jesus, Bunyan wrote. We say to Jesus, you don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. Jesus says, I know. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than others see, but there's perversity inside me that's hidden from everyone. Jesus responds, I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. Jesus responds, I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. Jesus responds, that's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy, it's heavier all the time. Jesus responds, then let me carry him. It's too much to bear, Jesus responds, not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're directed against you. Jesus responds, then I'm the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Jesus responds, whoever comes to me, 
I will in no wise cast out. My wife and I were so encouraged reading again of just the secure promises that Jesus makes. He really keeps them. So look in verse 5 and rejoice in these repetition of the same phrase three times. He will, he will, he will. Listen, God will always be true to who he is and what he says. Always. He will, he will, he will. And when you know he will, then notice how he responds in verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Did you see the progression? It goes from he will to I will. Friends, I don't know a better definition of worship. Because he will, I will. Because of who he is, I will shout. Because of who he is, I will sing. Because of who he is, I will make melody. Who's got it better than us, the author says? Nobody. Because he will, I will. Christians throughout the millennia have tried to express the rapturous joy of knowing God personally. I'm partial to 1845's hymn by William W. Walford, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, the joys I feel, the bliss I share of those whose anxious spirits burn with strong desires for thy return. With such, I hasten to the place where God, my Savior, shows his face. He ends the fourth verse by talking about the delight it would be to be with God and saying, from Mount Pisgah's lofty height, I view my home and take my flight. This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize and shout while passing through the air, farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. Because now what he knew through faith, he knows through sight. Well, the front cover was the expression of faith. And we went through the first half of the middle. Verses 4 through 6, a prayer for security with God, dwelling in his presence, knowing his person. But now the second half of the middle is a prayer for security from God, which includes a plea for deliverance from enemies. Let's do this. We're going to read 7 through 12, right through, and then we'll come back and slow down on it. So verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Now the author speaks with urgency and petition. He's essentially asked for three things. First, that God would receive him, not casting him off. Second, that God would lead him, verse 11. And then third, that God would protect him, not giving him up to his adversaries. But here's the obvious question that has puzzled many students of the psalm. I mean, verses 1 through 6 were so 
solid and so full of praise and confidence. But now verses 7 through 12 almost read like he's equivocal. What makes sense of that? Why does there seem to be this change in tone? And there are basically two answers that have been put forward by scholars who studied Psalm 27, and here they are. The first is because humans are well human. And James Montgomery Boyce makes this point very well in his commentary on Psalm 27, so I'll quote him. Here's what he wrote. What we have here is an unfolding of two closely related moods by the same inspired author put together like two movements of a symphony. And the point is that these two apparently opposing moods are also often in us, frequently at the same or nearly the same time. Boyce asks, don't you find that you are often both confident and anxious, trusting and fearful, or at least that your mood swings easily between them? I do, he confesses. It is part of what it means to be a weak human being. Boyce makes a fair point. Part of the understanding of this movement is the understanding of human frailty. But there's another reason that makes sense of verses 7 through 12, and that is because verses 1 through 6 are praise for who God is, but verses 7 through 12 are petition to God. So it makes sense that he would be more equivocal because he's making a request. Verses 1 through 6 are here's who God is. Verses 7 through 12 is God, will you please? Hence the language. Alan Ross represents this understanding well. He writes, The author prayed earnestly with some anxiety for help. Because here he's asking the Lord not to forsake him while he's in great need. I think the answer is both, surely. Our humanity always plays into effect in our faith and trust in God. But also, when we ask petition, we surely ask in plea. But here's the thing I want you to catch as your pastor who deeply is concerned for your growth and confidence in Christ. Here's what I want you to know this morning. Especially, Christian, hear this this morning. It is not faithless to pour out your heart to God. It is not unfaithful to lament, to cry, to express doubt, and to express it to God. Does not the Bible tell us that in other places? Think of Philippians 4, verse 6. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Think of James 5, verse 11, which says, Beloved, learn from the perseverance of Job. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And everyone who's read Job thinks the perseverance of Job, didn't he question God? Yes, but he brought his doubts to God. God, who wrote the Bible, says this in Jude, verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. If God is telling us to be merciful to those who doubt, don't you think he follows his own counsel? You can bring all of your doubts and concerns and distresses to the Lord. I'm very partial to Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel 1. She's praying so earnestly that the priest Eli thinks that she is drunk She says, no, my Lord, I am troubled in spirit. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. That's what godly prayer looks like. In Luke 18, Jesus 
tells us in verse 1. He told a parable towards this effect that we ought to always pray and not lose heart. And the parable is about an unjust judge and a persistent widow. At the end of it, the judge who has to keep being persistently annoyed almost by the widow, Jesus says, will the Son of Man find such faith when he returns to earth? So pray earnestly, even with your doubts and concerns. But now notice the verbiage. So I told you there are three categories in verse 7 through 12. Receive, lead, and protect. I want to show you receive. So just a few words in verses 7 through 10. Look at them. I'll just point out a couple. Notice Verse 7, he says, hear. Notice the, the, the plea of anxiety. Hear me. Answer me. Verse 9, hide not your face from me. Turn not. Cast not. Forsake not. These are words of urgent devotion and desperation. God, I need you and I don't know where else to go. Now verse 11. So, Lord, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my enemies. So it's not only that the author is devoted and desperate, but he's so desperate he wants the Lord to lead in any way. I think D.A. Carson is correct when he comments on this verse and says, it cannot be said too strongly or too often that to claim that you're willing to pursue God without a willingness for reformation of life is wicked and dangerous nonsense. Let me rephrase it in my own words. If you're like, Lord, I'm desperate and I want your help, but I don't want to live your way, you're not desperate enough yet. You haven't been humbled enough yet until you're ready to also say verse 11. Hear me, don't forsake me, don't cast me off, and show me the right way, Lord. I'm here to follow you. So he goes from receive me to lead me, but now finally protect me, and that's verse 12. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have riven against me and they breathe out violence. I want to encourage you again, brothers and sisters, in your praying. In verse 13 and 14, he will end in yielding his request. But please don't ever be hampered by the concern. Well, I don't know. Am I praying God's will? I don't know if I'm allowed to pray this or not. Look at verse 12. Deliver me, Lord, please. If you're sick, ask God to heal you. If you're hurting, ask God to help you. If you feel like you're dying, ask God to rescue you, revive you, deliver you. Bring your request, all of them, to God. And know that doing so is not just for God's glory, but for your infinite good. So now I want to circle back to verse 10 because it's so poignant and I think it sticks out when you read the passage. So Psalm 27, verse 10, for my father... And my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. We read from Jesus in Hebrews 13, verse 5. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. When he touches that nerve in verse 10, it's one that I think hits humanity because we we know what it feels like to be rejected. Perhaps by our parents or by our children or by someone of a similar level of intimacy in our life. It reveals something about us. We seek acceptance. We don't want that feeling of being rejected, though we see it so often. Parents who do reject children and vice versa. Wives and husbands. Friends we once had. Employers. 
people we were courting. Rejection is so common to us, you need to hear from this verse again. God will not reject you. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. We also seek to be heard. Children sometimes speak just so that you'll listen. As parents, no doubt, sometimes I fail to listen. But God will never fail to hear you. We seek guidance. Man, I wish I had him to call. I wish I could still swing by her house. I wish I could get counsel on this specific thing, but they're not there anymore. But the Lord will always be there to lead us in the way everlasting. And we seek protection from those from whom it is most necessary. And God never fails to deliver, even through death, those who are his. So the front cover of the book was, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The middle pages of the book are two pleas, a plea to be with God, a plea for security from God. But now the back cover of the book circles essentially to where he began, an expression of hope. And look now in verse 13. I believe, notice again that reassertion of faith. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now verse 14, he turns and invites us all, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Verse 14, do those two terms seem funny or ironic to put together? Be strong. All right, how do I be strong? You wait. Be strong by waiting? That phrase, be strong in the Lord, is used all throughout the Bible. Moses tells Joshua to be strong in the Lord before he leads Israel into battle. Joshua tells the army to be strong in the Lord when facing the enemy. David tells Solomon to be strong in the Lord when he becomes king. Hezekiah tells the military officers to be strong in the Lord when they're besieged by Sennacherib. Be strong in the Lord. Yet how, in verse 14, by waiting on the Lord. Wilson writes on this verse, waiting on God is hard work. In one way, however, it is perhaps the only way to demonstrate that God's strength is manifest in our weakness. Often to admit that we are powerless is the first step toward acknowledging God's strength unleashed in our lives. There is such strength in waiting. Waiting trusts God with his timetable, not ours. Waiting trusts God's with his mechanism and his methods, not ours. But brothers and sisters, God is a God worth waiting for. And it is a privilege to wait for him. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understandings are unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases their strength. Even youths shall faint and grow weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So now, as we've concluded, the front, the middle, and the back of the book, we have a couple key questions. Throughout the 
book of Psalm 27, the author has been talking about a Lord that he knows personally. So the big question I have is, do you know the Lord like that? You know him personally. He's yours. Well, I want you to know that what he's been talking about is something that we're not actually able to accomplish on our own. In verse 4, he says, I want to see your face. In verse 8, he says, I'm going to seek your face. But in the Bible, we recount that Jacob and Moses had just a mere glimpse of the face, so to speak, of God, and they could behold no more. Moses asked to see God's face. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock, and God made clear that no one can see God and live. We read in John 1.18, no one can see God and live. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. So if you're thinking, man, I want to know the Lord the way the author knows the Lord. Well, we can't know the Lord except through the Lord Jesus. The expressed image and radiance, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Picture a girl with a perfectly white dress. And yet, One splotch of black ink or one smear of mud makes it impure. God's been called light, but he's completely spotless light, radiant, resplendent, and yet our souls are spotted. So the only hope for our spotted souls to dwell in the house of perfect light is for someone to wash us white as snow. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. When on the cross, he took all of our spots and was punished to remove them in our place willingly so that we can receive his radiant perfection. Charles Spurgeon wrote on this verse, the beauty of the Lord is seen in Christ. Christ is the brightness of the Father's glory. Christ is the express image of his person. And he that has seen Christ has seen the Father. The beauty of the Lord is seen in Christ when we consider him as the Father's gift. Christ is the finest spectacle of moral beauty which men or angels have ever set their eyes on. This morning, if you desire to know the Lord, you must see Christ. Because through him and him alone can we know the Lord. But there's a final application for those who know the Lord. And here's how it ties to gratitude. When our God is this kind of a God, a God who is our light and our salvation and our stronghold, then our privilege is to trust him and our joy is to praise him. So look just in chapter 28, verse 7. Psalm 28, verse 7, just probably across the page for you. Psalm 28, verse 7. When you're there, please read it with me out loud. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. Let's pray together this morning. God, because of who you are, then help us with our song to give thanks to you. Because the Bible says he will, our response is I will. Thank you, Lord, that you are a light and salvation. We need not be afraid. And regardless of who forsakes us, we know that you never will. And 
despite the difficulty or dangers that may impinge upon our life, it is possible to face them with confidence and peace that passes understanding because there is a transcendent God who has good purposes and who has a person that we can find safety, stronghold, and security in. Lord, as we sing, I pray that you would work in our hearts greater affections for you. One thing may we believe, have I asked of the Lord that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord forever. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.